Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Welcome back to another episode and another introduction. What is this? Take three of the Canadian <laughs> Canadian Real Estate Investor <laughs> podcast, not the Canadian Audio Recording Specialist podcast. We would not do well. No, we in that would one. not at all. But uh, we're we're getting by here because we love talking about real estate and delivering value to the audience. So, Nick, how's it going today? It is going well, man. I had to leave an event to come back and record this with you because you know we don't take a day off from this. We do not miss every Tuesday and Friday. You can come and listen to Dan and I talk about real estate for about 40 minutes. I was at a really cool event today, though. It was, uh, Dan, you and I go to a lot of events. They're usually a bit more fancy schmancy, real estate or development related. You know, we get all suited up and I try to slick my hair back a little bit to look somewhat professional. And those events are always great. But this one was a bit different. It was called Bet on Canada and it was a room full of young tech entrepreneurs. And we both got the invite. Unfortunately, you couldn't make it because you had other important meetings. Yeah, I was get- at Wall Street Bet on Canada. <laughs> And it was great. Braden actually, Braden from TCI, the the Canadian investor who who brought us on here, he he extended the invite and he actually spoke and it was a really cool talk on how to grow a podcast. And it was hilarious because after his talk and there was a bit of a lunch break, I had a couple of people come up and recognize me, which is still super weird, but very cool. But I'm telling you, man, this guy had like a lineup of people waiting to talk to him and we made some really great connections there. So I'll talk to you more about it offline, but it was a really great time. You would have enjoyed it. What, what about you? What was, how was your meeting this morning? Yeah, it was good. I met with some pretty influential guys in the development space in Toronto in regards to potentially, you know, using the audience to fundraise and get people involved in, in sort of the more capital markets game, you know, for investment opportunities for for our listeners and and beyond. And also, I wanted to chat about events because we're having two of them, three actually. But we will be doing our Calgary event. We did. I don't think we announced that one on the podcast yet, but we have put it out on on our social media platforms. But Calgary will be on the twenty fourth from seven to nine p.m. Mountain Standard Time. We have two great local partners out there. So thank you to Cash and Homes, who's a large wholesaler in the area. And we'll do an episode explaining what wholesaling is because it's probably a little bit more demonized out here in Ontario, but you know, it serves a decent place in, in the US and in a lot of slower markets. And then we're going to do an event on the 26th, I think it is, at noon in Edmonton. So Calgary and Edmonton. So we're doing two Alberta events. Alberta has been really good to us. The investment community is awesome out there. Yeah. So we'd love to have our listeners out, right, Nick? You and I are both going to be there. We've got a great panel. I'm not smart enough to sit on the panel, so I will be asking the questions to Dan and and some other really great guests we have. Again, supported by Calvert, which is a MIC, which we'll also do an episode on. That's a mortgage investment company or mortgage investment corporation. Really great model. So if you're in Berta, we better see you there. We want to see you there. We're looking forward to it. It's kind of the first event that we've done like this. So uh, there'll be many more, but we're very excited because this is the first Yeah, especially one. like really been looking forward to meeting the audience, you know, getting to, to see all the people who we're interacting with on a regular basis and just creating value, having more conversations about real estate, more local conversations about real estate, connecting people. Like this has really been one of our big goals for the podcast. So I'm excited to actually, I didn't expect this to happen this soon. So thank you to everybody who's helped Neither us. Neither did I. Yeah. 
But you know what? Sometimes this stuff happens. It happens quickly, and it and it works out like that. And I'm sure we'll, you know, well, there'll be some mistakes, but we'll 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 fix them all, and we'll get them on the next one. Anyways, let's get into the show today. We got a ton of stuff to cover. We're going to be talking about immigration, the new numbers and facts that we've seen in the headlines. We're going to be looking at CMHC data on housing and trying to line that up, and then also analyzing the final piece, which is the labor market. So. I'm going to start things off here by just opening up and looking at the 2023 to 2025 immigration levels plan. So the plan embraces immigration as a strategy to help businesses find workers and attract the skills required in key sectors, including healthcare, skilled trades, manufacturing, technology, and to manage the social and economic challenges that Canada will face in the decades ahead. Yeah, so I think last year we announced or welcomed 405,000 newcomers, the most we'd ever done in a single year, and basically seemed pretty determined to break that record year over year. And you know, most notably, so the government's continuing that ambition by setting targets, new levels, plan of 465,000 permanent residents in 2023, so next year, 485 in 2024, and then 500,000. This is the big headline that you're hearing about, 500,000 in 2025. The plan also brings an increased focus on attracting newcomers to different regions of the country. And this is a big challenge that you're hearing about because a lot of people end up flocking to specific areas within Canada. And it's almost like really improperly spreading out that resource. And so there's a lot to be seen from understanding where those might, where they're trying to encourage those migration patterns. So that includes small towns and rural communities. Yeah, it was really great to see that they just full out said that in like the introduction of the plan, you know, like not everyone's going to land in Toronto, Vancouver and Montreal. Like we got a, there's a lot of, there's a lot of Canada to go around. So I'm just going to go through a few of the highlights here. This isn't all of them, but a long-term focus on economic growth with over 60% of admissions in the economic immigration class of 2025. And we'll go over the different classes of immigration in a second using new features in the express entry system to welcome newcomers with required skills and qualifications in sectors facing acute labor shortages, such as, as we just mentioned, healthcare, manufacturing, building trades, and STEM, which if you don't know, stands for science, technology, engineering, and math. Increased in regional programs to adjust targeted local labor market needs through the Provincial Nominee Program, Atlantic Immigration Program, and Rural and Northern Immigration Pilot. So again, you really see the rhetoric in this report driving like, hey, we've got to fill some of the rest of Canada up. This is a good one. Reuniting families faster. Love that. And finally, support for global crises by providing a safe haven to those facing persecution, including by expanding the economic mobility pathways pilot. So not exactly sure what that means. But Dan, why don't you tell us what types of immigrants there are because they're divided into four classes here. Yeah, for sure. I'd love to get in that. And it's actually interesting, you know, we've we've chatted with an investor who does a lot of stuff around this rural and northern immigration pilot, which has existed for a while in the Ontario market focused on trying to bring people to communities that, you know, are, aren't typically attractive to immigration and, you know, trying to distribute them to help balance labor costs, but also to help grow local economies that really need it. So, and there's really good investment exposure from those opportunities. Different types of immigrants in Canada. So there's four different types, economic immigrants, immigrants sponsored by family, refugees, and other immigrants. So I'll start off with economic immigrants. This category includes immigrants who have been selected for their ability to contribute to Canada's economy through their ability to meet labor market needs 
to own and manage or build business, to make a substantial investment, to create their own employment, or to meet specific provincial or territorial labor market needs. And you hear so much about this labor imbalance in Canada, the labor shortage that we're hearing about, job vacancies. And so one of the big, the primary objectives here is to start balancing those things if, if you know, if the economy doesn't do it itself, you know, in the meantime. Wait, so sorry, you're saying the economy can balance yeah. itself? No, that's just the budget. <laughs> Oh, the budget, right. Sorry. The economy, right. I think, grows from the heart out, I think, in that situation. Yeah, I can't, I can't remember exactly how those ones went. But number two, immigrants sponsored by family. So this category includes, and this would be along, for, uh, along with that goal that you mentioned before, of reuniting more families faster. Immigrants who were sponsored by a Canadian citizen or permanent residence and were granted permanent residence status on the basis of their relationship, either as a spouse, partner, parent, grandparent, child, or other relative of the sponsor. The terms family class or family reunification are sometimes used to refer to this category. Number three, refugee. This category includes immigrants who were granted permanent resident status on the basis of a well-founded fear of returning to their home country. No shortage of that happening globally right now. This category includes persons who had a well-founded, I think I should mention that one, but persecution for reasons of race, religion, nationality, membership in particular social group, or for political opinion, Geneva Convention refugees, as well as persons who had been seriously and personally affected by civil war or armed conflict or have suffered a massive violation of human rights. This is really fulfilling more of that social good as mentioned in those goals above. And then finally, number four, other immigrants. This category includes immigrants who were granted permanent resident status under a program that does not fall in any of those categories I just mentioned and not sponsored by family or the refugee categories. So, and I think... You know, you and I were at an event recently where was that statistic that Ben Tao mentioned? So Ben Tao is the chief economist for CIBC. He mentioned something about 70% of, was it that Q2? Like we mentioned on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, Q2, we just saw 700,000 immigrants or something like that. The highest number ever in Canadian or since, since Newfoundland was added as a province or something like that. But a, a large portion of them were from all from one country. Right, and you want to take a wild guess at that? What country I want you, that I was? want you to say it because I was like, I was like <laughs> on a cliff. I feel like I was like on a cliffhanger when he was saying that. I was like, what? What country is that going to be? It's kind of crazy, and and I tell you right now, most people you're all guessing in your heads right now. You're wrong <laughs> because the country that most of that most people are immigrating to into Canada is Canada. Now you're probably asking, how the hell does that make sense? Well, according to the chief economist at CIBC, who's got way better access to information than than we all do, they were all students. People who were here for any type of visa that it expired, right? Sorry, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Students, uh, temporary visas, temporary workers, whatever that may be. But essentially, the government said, hey, you guys are, you guys are already here. Why don't you apply for your PR while you're here? And the kind of the the sentiment was, listen, we've educated everyone. Let's try to keep everyone here. Now, the only issue is how many of them were actually construction workers and nurses and STEM that we actually need and that were they were in dire need of. Yeah, I think that you know one of the big things as well was like a lot of those visas had expired, right? So it made more sense to like stream them into the PR. The way it appeared, sort of, I guess. In the data, it made it look like we just saw this huge influx. It's tough to say, and I think it's tough to allocate to meet the labor market demands of Canada, but also all around the world. Because like, it's not just Canada that needs a ton of nurses, right? Like, We have an aging population globally. Baby, baby boomers are pushing to the top of the population pyramid. And so 
the question becomes, do we become globally competitive? Because at a certain point, your nation is competing for a lot of this talent from all around the world. Yeah, totally. And I'm, and I'm going to elaborate on that. Just Let's just take a quick break first. Okay. So we've seen all these new people coming in and that's fantastic because essentially Canada would not only shrink, but most likely fail without immigration. So Canada is a low fertility country or below the no migration population replacement level of 2.1 children per woman. Fertility rates have been steadily declining since 2009, with the trend intensifying since the onset of the pandemic. Canada's fertility rate decreased from 1.47 children per woman in 2019 to a record low of 1.4 children per woman in 2020. That's 0.7 children that have just gone missing at that point. In 2020, Canada also experienced the lowest number of births since 2007 and the greatest year-over-year decrease in births at minus 3.6% since 1997, which is a trend similar to several other first world countries. Crazy. The 2021 census showed that Canada's population grew 5.2% from 2016 to just under 37 million people in 2021. Immigration, not fertility, mostly drove Canada's population growth during that period. So now that we understand the importance of immigration in Canada, let's talk about the logistics of it. Namely, two things. Number one, where are these people going to live? And number two, what are they going to do for work? I mean, this is really how we're going to tie in why it's important to investors. So we have seen some improvements in Ontario with the legislation that allows for multiple units to be built on each property. And you're starting to see similar zoning reforms and density incentives happening across Canada. This is good because you can literally increase your density, but it won't. it's not meaningful enough to solve that problem. It's early days for the density plan in Toronto to take shape. Construction is a slow and fairly archaic industry as it is, let alone permits planning, you know, the entitlements process and all the other barriers that slow this process down. And that's just Toronto. That's not the whole country. And that's just one city in the whole country. But the thing is, a lot of immigrants land in Ontario, which if you know they land in Ontario, the chances are they're most probably going to touch Toronto. Dan, we've got a great chart here of the number of immigrants arriving in Canada in 2022 by province. Why don't we go one for one? Start us so off. So Ontario will land 227,000. Wow. Crazy. That is drastically more than anyone else on the list here with BC in a distant second at a mere 83,200. I mean, I think it's still worth noting that both of those numbers are the size of small Canadian cities. So you're basically moving an entire city into each of these provinces every year. Yeah. Hey, BC, you get a new Burnaby. There you go. Next is Quebec at 62,798. Followed by Alberta at 52,573. Manitoba, 21,340. Saskatchewan will receive 16,281 new immigrants in 2022. Nova Scotia, 13,816. New Brunswick at 8,401. PEI at 3,436. Newfoundland and Labrador at 2,843. And then Yukon at 663. And the Northwest Territories at 346. And Nunavut at 52, just 52. I want to make that 53. Dan, I'm going. (laughs) 
So immigration is great. We literally rely on it in Canada. Now, I, I guess let's really just to try and contextualize this whole thing, let's tie it in with housing and the struggles that we're getting, you know, that we're seeing and the other problems that we have to sort of solve before we can actually adequately economize this whole opportunity, let's call it. So if the current rates of new construction continue, according to CMHC, we would project that the housing stock will increase by 2.3 million units between 2021 and 2030. This will reach close to 19 million housing units by 2030 total in Canada. And affordability has changed over time in Canada, but not for the better. The last time housing was affordable was in 2003 and 2004. So we basically haven't had an, on an income basis. Whoa. Yeah, I know. I know. So, I, I mean, that we weren't even consuming housing at that point. We're like, so house prices during this period <laughs> implied that house costs were affordable and, and we're, that's based on the maximum affordable price level. Yeah. So if we look back to 2003, 2004, literally 20 full years ago, two decades, on average, a household income would have to devote close to 40% of their disposable income to buy an average house in Ontario and 45% of their disposable income to buy an average house in British Columbia. In 2021, an average income would have to devote close to 60% of their incomes to housing. That's a 20% and a 15% increase from what was already too high because it, it's 30%. That's that's the kind of unwritten rule, right, Dan? It's 30%. It's funny because you're hearing them talk so much lately about how they're like, oh, maybe we have to rethink. I mean, even in my interview uh, most recently with Stephen Polos, the ex-Bank of Canada governor, you know, he was saying, ah, it might be time to, to rethink that figure, right? And maybe we should be thinking about a different number. And it sounds like most people, you know, economists and banks are feeling the same way. So, or, or is it time to just redefine affordability? <laughs> yeah, or just basically say, like, look, you're in a in a late stage capitalistic economy, and you're not going to get affordable housing, and that's unfortunate. It really is, and and the government can kind of just throw their hands up and be like, we didn't do. It. I think it's time to stop pretending that they think it's achievable because they don't think that they actually do. Let's go through. You know, the National Bank does some excellent work on this stuff, by the way. So, if anybody wants to, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna pull it up there reports as well. And just just to give you context on how they measure it, which is how long it takes the average wage earner to save up for a down payment, I think it is, or to buy a house. So I'll, I'll pull that up. But first, let's go through this chart, which is basically demonstrating that they've the government has sort of capitulated and said, okay, we're never going to reach that target affordability of 30%. So here's our updated target affordability percentages in each of these provinces. So in Ontario... They are aiming to hit a target level of affordability in 2030 of 37%. So 37% of your household income, uh, the average Ontarian's household income should go to housing. And the housing supply required to do that is 1.85 million houses, just just 1.85 million houses. No biggie. Let's move on to Quebec with a 32% level of affordability targeted by 2030 and 620,000 new homes. Needs to be built. And then BC, one of the most famously expensive places and, and statistically the most expensive on this piece of paper here is 44% target level of affordability. So 44% of household income and they need 570,000 homes. And just to, to before we get to, to Manitoba here, from National Bank's housing affordability monitor, the most recent one, um, the mortgage payment as a percent of income in BC as for a non-condo is 121 point two percent 
And even for a condo is 50.1%. So you can see, uh, sorry, 50, 51. Wow. Yeah. And it takes just 472 months of saving to, for the average person to save a down payment. That's yeah, of course. Just, just 30, 30 <laughs> something years. Yeah. Let's keep working down our way down the chart here. We've got Manitoba at a target affordability by 2030 level, 30% and 260,000 homes need to be built. Saskatchewan, 30% as well. Newfoundland, 30%. Saskatchewan, you need about 100,000 homes. And Newfoundland, we get down to only 60,000 homes needed. Yeah, Nova Scotia is one of the only smaller provinces above that 30% threshold at 31, just 31% of the target affordability in 2030. And only, I guess, 50,000 homes required for them to meet that target. Here's another one. I'm having a hard time with this one. Alberta, 30%. That that seems reasonable, but only 20,000 homes? Like, that can't be right. Because then we go to New Brunswick and PEI, both at 30%. And apparently, they don't need any more homes there. Those are literally blank on the on the chart here for a total of, of 3.5 million homes by 2030. So, it is interesting on the topic of Alberta because... So, if I pull up again this uh, housing affordability monitor from, from National Bank here... A lot of it's just like they're not an undersupplied market per se. You know, like there's not a huge, they're not in a huge state of excess demand. And a lot of that's because they've been on so many, like this wavy cycle, right? Like tons of people were moving out there during the oil booms and then they would leave. And so there's a lot of vacancy or it's cheaper to have homes. And and like they're building at a decent pace because they do have a very, very robust construction industry. But, you know, if you look at Calgary and Edmonton, both are, in the 30%. So Calgary is 37.4%, which is a mortgage payment as percent of income. And it only takes 39 months of saving for the average person to have a down payment to purchase a home. And in Edmonton, it's 30.9% mortgage payment as a percentage of income. And it only takes 30 months of saving for the average person to save up a down payment for a home. So, you know, the the reality is these the cities are already affordable. So that it isn't a supply issue that's needed to create a supply solution that's needed to create affordability in these Alberta markets. We just use that for 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 context there. We project that if the, the current new rates of new construction continue, housing stock will increase to close to 19 million housing units by 2030. To restore affordability, they project that Canada will need an additional 3.5 million units here. Two-thirds of the 3.5 million housing unit gap is in Ontario and British Columbia alone, which is where we are seeing that lack of affordability hit the most. Which kind of brings me back to what the government was saying is that like, look, we're we're going to take 500,000 new immigrants and essentially time and time again saying, please don't just move to BC and Ontario. <laughs> There's a lot of other Canada out there. Additional supply would also be needed in Quebec, a province once considered affordable. It has seen a marked decline in affordability over the last few years in comparison to, you know, Ontario and, and BC, Quebec is still much better. However, again, it's trending in the wrong direction. Other provinces remain largely affordable for households with the average level of disposable income. However, challenges remain for low-income households in accessing housing that is affordable across Canada. So why don't we take a, another quick break here, Dan, and we'll jump back in to labor right after this. Okay, to recap, we have looked at immigration numbers and how important immigration is to the growth of our country. We have looked at housing data from CMHC and 
basically their projections for affordability. Now let's look at the final piece of the puzzle, which is labor. And this is probably the most talked about thing in Canadian economics among the banks. And the Bank of Canada now talking about this, talking about labor far more than they talk about housing. And labor are the people who are going to build everything. You know, I think if you look at, you know, the labor challenges in Canada, we talk about it as if, and, and, you know, Ontario just came out with this more homes built faster plan where basically they're hoping to get rid of some of the red tape to expedite how many places can be built. So you get, get rid of the, what they call that is the planning process or the entitlement process. So all of these sites have entitlements and that you can build on them. Now, all of a sudden you just move the bottleneck from the red tape portion to the construction portion. Cause we don't have enough people. Yeah. So everybody's like, Oh yeah, you got to Literally it's, it's kicking the can down the road again, just in now, you know, now it's another industry's fault. Yeah. And, and, or it's just another problem to solve rather than solving all of the problems sort of at the same time. So In addition to the challenges represented by a shortage of labor, almost two-fifths or 36.9% of businesses expect recruiting skilled labor as an obstacle, slightly lower than the proportion of businesses that expected the same last quarter. At the same time, over one quarter of businesses expect challenges retaining skilled labor also down slightly from the previous quarter. Businesses in construction and manufacturing were most likely to expect difficulty in recruiting skilled labor over the next three months, while businesses in accommodation and food services were the most likely to expect retaining skilled employees to be a challenge. So from 40, I guess they're at 42.4%, followed by healthcare and social assistance, which is 34%. Yeah, now that's all on a Stats Canada report from analysis on the labor challenges in Canada from the second quarter of 2022. And man, the construction just leading the charge on this one again at 49.5%. I mean, that is not great. It seems like there is a huge amount of the labor force missing. But let's focus on construction for a second. Again, something vital to real estate, which is something you're all interested in because you're listening to this podcast. We need construction labor to build these millions of units that people are going to live in. We also need skilled trades to build and densify our cities. I mean, it's great changing legislation, but who's going to build the laneway homes and the garden suites? Who's going to turn your single family home into a duplex or duplex into a triplex? We need skilled trades and we don't have them, unfortunately. And Dan, I know you and I probably talk about this all the time. You must get this from investors and clients that this is an issue. Yeah, we're hearing it all the time. I mean, it becomes like on the development side, over the past two years has become such a big variable in the ability for a project to execute properly. Like you're you're seeing variances of 20, 30% year over year in, in construction. It's gotten to the point where it's so... And this is changing a little bit slowly. And and I think it's kind of one of those things where it's slowly and all at once. Like as we start seeing project cancellations happening in Toronto and across the country, the economics work worse. You will start seeing the labor market be a little bit less tight, but it's literally hard to keep people, people accountable right now and, you know, keep sites moving properly. Like that's how broken the labor imbalance has gotten. So, you know, I went through it on a closing recently where pretty much every trade was behind and costs there was cost acceleration that the builder asked me to to give them extra money to close the the deal and you're hearing all kinds of these horror stories happening across the country right you know it's crazy cuz it's not just your 
general contractor that's, you know, or, or one of our many general contractors that we work with complaining. That's always been the complaint. I can't find good people. I can't get these good people to stay around. We're now, you know, we're seeing it on a micro and a macro level where it's, you know, we've got massive infrastructure projects being canceled. We've got massive condo developments being paused. And it's a problem that is that is so ingrained in in our construction process, whether you're building a duplex or or a 30-story building, that it's tough to see how we get out of this one. And and I think the the next report that you're gonna read is gonna shed, shed even more light on yeah, that. Yeah, for sure. And and I think this is this matters a lot to investors because construction is a huge input cost for us in the real estate space, right? Like this is how you bring units to market is by building them. And so it does matter a lot to investors. It also matters because the replacement cost, which we consider to be a hedge and often the inflation hedge that you hear about in real estate is how much would it cost to rebuild that unit? You know, I mean, we recently had an appraisal that came in high on one of our properties that we closed in Cornwall. And that's because it costs so much money to rebuild these these things right now. So that's why, like, again, these imbalances, they kind of support you. They're like a necessary evil or they can be your best friend or your worst enemy, depending on which part of the or which phase of the investment process you're in. So anyway, from StatCan, Canada's housing supply shortage, skilled labor capacity. So at its current pace, there's insufficient labor capacity to address the significant housing supply gaps, mainly in Ontario and BC. Under a best case scenario, labor capacity exists only to increase housing starts activity across all four major provinces between 2022 to 2030 by an annual average of 30 to 50% above CMHC's baseline housing starts forecast. In Ontario, it could increase by 36%. In Quebec, it could increase by 29%. British Columbia by 41% and Alberta by 54%. The reason those latter two is a little bit higher is because their existing supply isn't as high. Yeah, great point. And Ontario, Quebec, and and BC need to double their best case labor capacity in order to adequately reach housing affordability supply targets by 2030. That's doubling. I mean, where? how does that happen? Labor capacity issues are most critical in Ontario, which has the largest population and, of course, the highest price pressures. But also, if we rent, reference the chart from earlier, that's where most immigrants land, like by far, right? It was over 200,000 immigrants land there versus the 80,000 in Vancouver or BC, which was second. So while the pandemic has shown that the workplace can pivot and manage greater construction volumes with fewer workers as technology increases in the construction sector, this is still going to cause construction backlogs, which we have been seeing and experiencing firsthand. This will create delays and postpone supplying new units in markets that are in desperate need of supply. Even if we go back up uh, again, Dan, one of the other major things that is experiencing major supply shortage is manufacturing. And within that manufacturing, there's a lot of construction materials. So it's kind of the double whammy for building materials and construction with the labor shortage. Yeah, for sure. I think it's unignorable when you're in the industry that, you know, like, I mean, if anybody, if any of our listeners have tried booking a contractor right now, I mean, they're booking months out, Yeah, right? The costs are, you get sticker shock every time you look at an invoice from a contractor and, and you can't even, like, it's not, you can't blame them. Like, we're seeing this is cost push inflation. We've talked about it a couple of times here when we were talking about inflation. I mean, this is how it starts hitting people. And 
eventually that creates problems. You know, the biggest one being that we aren't able to hit our, our housing supply affordability targets. And again, the reason this matters for investors is because based on the, the just the algebra, just the math here of what we're about to present to you, none of these four provinces that we're about to, to mention will ever be able to hit their affordability targets. So the reality is, what, what does that mean? Well, that means that rents are going to continue to climb. House prices are going to continue to climb eventually. When people talk about immigration being you know, a fundamental in Canadian real estate, this is what they mean. And I would agree in the fullness of time. I think that capital constraints are really going to cause some pain in the Canadian market in, in the short term. But in the long term, it's undeniable that, you know, excess demand is here to stay in Canada unless people just magically stop wanting to move here, which I don't see happening. So housing supply affordability targets versus their best case housing starts projection. So in Ontario, the target to hit affordability is 2.6 million houses. And the best case scenario based on CMHC's projections is just over a million homes that we'll be able to build by 2030. Quick math, that is a delta of about over one and a half million. <laughs> That's tough. And that's from 2022 to 2030. You know, the numbers are small, but it doesn't get much better as we go down the list here in, in British Columbia. Affordability target 993,450. Best case scenario. Again, these are best case scenarios. Guess what? In construction, the best case scenario rarely happens. So from 993,000 to 598,000. So again, we're almost 50% affordability target. Best case scenario is only 50% in BC. And in Quebec, the affordable target is 1.1 million homes. And the best case scenario, given their current construction capacity, is 649,000 homes that they should be able to build. Alberta is an interesting one, and this will kind of bring greater clarity to why they'll be able to reach their affordability targets. But I get to read this one, right? Yeah. <laughs> I always like how I get to read all the good stuff. So this is actually surprisingly great news here. Affordable target for Alberta between 2022 and 2030, 418,000 homes. Best case scenario, 612 homes, 612,000, I should say, sorry. So let's say we don't hit that best case scenario, which, you know, if you're in real estate and real estate investing and construction, the best case scenario doesn't happen all the time. So even if, you know, let's just say medium case scenario, Alberta should actually hit those affordability targets, Yeah, which is pretty good for investors. And that's kind of one of the major takeaways, I hope, for some people here. Yeah. I mean, I guess the reality is Alberta's market has been relatively balanced and reliable from a cash flow perspective. It hasn't really been a, a speculation hotspot. And this is the reason why. I mean, they're able to build efficiently based on the demand that they have. Their best case scenario is that, you know, as you just mentioned, they could outpace demand by 25%, basically if they wanted to. They're not going to because it's, the economics of that don't make sense. There's no sense building <laughs> houses for people who aren't going to go buy them. Unless all of a sudden we do start seeing almost like, you know, economic migration throughout Canada, which, you know, based on some of the StatCan data that we're seeing, you're likely starting to see that. What does this mean? This means that Alberta is able to provide more affordable housing. And based on some of the data, like just simply based on their supply and demand, they're able to provide more affordable housing than most of the other provinces. And so we know that we're having massive problems in Ontario, BC, and Quebec, where young people are having a hard time living close to the workplace because they quite simply can't afford it. The numbers just don't make sense. 
And so Alberta is actually, and you hear the Alberta is calling ads and whatever it is. I mean, they have, I think, 90,000 job vacancies in Alberta. So there are jobs there and there are cheaper houses. If you're a young person, right, and you want to go somewhere, you want to get ahead, you want to save as much money as you can, are you going to go to the place where the numbers don't make sense? Probably not. And so what you have to imagine, most people who are migrating here are also coming here for that that life. And yes, yeah, snow or whatever it is, the climate is apparently... I actually think it's warmer in Alberta on average, but there's way more snow. It's undisputable. Nobody's, nobody's going to knock that one. But I think Calgary is actually statistically warmer than Toronto. But anyway, the point that I'm trying to make here is that the numbers have to make sense for the consumers of housing, and that's either tenants or owners. And so affordability is my position, a bull case, because it makes the that localized economy function better and able to grow better because you're not having aggregate waste of people going out, earning wages, and then pissing it all away on housing. And then that's more money that can circulate into the economy. And you're going to see the effect of that right now as we start seeing people have to spend more and more money on servicing their mortgages as interest rates go up. Where Alberta, there'll be a lot more disposable income laying around because people are at 30% of household income. Whereas in Ontario, they're at 40, whatever, 37 or 44 in BC. And so percent projected. So there's a lot, so there's a lot less disposable income in some of the, so you're going to see a much more profound contraction or pain in those economies where people are spending so much household income servicing that housing cost. Housing as a portion of income isn't a good thing. And so economic growth that'll come from, I think you'll start to see it in, in some of these areas where housing is more affordability. You'll see able to actually grow through periods of what will likely be a recession in Canada. Yeah, really, really solid points there, Dana. Just a few final thoughts from me and like, you know, what does this mean for investors? Why should, you know, if you're out there trying to find your first duplex, wherever you are in the country, why should you care about this? Well, it presents a ton of opportunity. And this is where data really comes into play. You know, follow the trend. Where are these people going to land? I bet you didn't know that over, you know, out of the 500,000, over 200,000 immigrants land in Ontario. When they get here, what are they going to be doing? What will their budgets be? What type of housing are they going to be looking for? And reverse engineer that. Also, it's now more important than ever to have a good contractor, contractors, and or skilled labor at your disposable on that power team that we've talked about. Guys, I cannot stress this enough. Do not be arguing with your contractors about price. Don't be trying to beat them down because they'll go find someone else for it because there is no shortage of work for these guys. Also, Dan, a little anecdote between us. I mean, how many times have we talked to one of our partners that, you know, who's a great general contractor in the GTA here? He's telling us that if he quotes a job at the beginning of the summer, he's almost got to go back and quote it again before they start because his margins have completely decreased just in a few months where building materials have, have gone up drastically. So now, yeah, to be fair there, like I think if you were to put a little bit of economic forecasting in there, I think most recent stat can report the value of building permits in the multifamily component dropped uh, 21.2% in September. I think it was 17.5% across all categories. So that's commercial and residential. This drop was largely due to Ontario, which fell 39.6% following a record high in August. So, I mean, it, you know, maybe a bit of a skew, but that would be a leading indicator that the construction market might be loosening a little bit. So, I would agree with you for the most part. Don't go beat people up on price yet. But I do think, and I'm not saying beat anyone up because I think that you beat them up in Q2 next year. I'm not not even (laughs) saying that, but I'm saying, you know, it might be worth waiting for 
the market to loosen a little bit. And I said this earlier on in the podcast, right? If your economic forecast is, think about this as an input cost. I literally have a raised bungalow that I'm waiting to put a basement apartment in. And I'm waiting because I, I really feel that I'm probably going to get a 20, 30% price savings just based on demand if I wait. And that outweighs the, well, there's a couple of other factors, obviously saving money towards it, cash flowing towards it, et cetera. But, you know, it would offset the loss of rent that I would be seeing during that period of time based on what I think that I'll save just by waiting to put that project out. I mean, if I was going to try and book somebody at today's price anyway, I'd probably be booking them six months out. So Yeah, exactly. So there you have it. Follow the data, follow the trends, figure out where everyone's going to go. That's the market you should be investing in and take it from Dan. Go beat your contractors up on price in Q2. We can't beat them up physically. They're a lot tougher than us. Yeah, that's also true. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. This has been a fun one for Dan and I. I hope we get to see everyone in Alberta at one of the two events at the end of the month. That's Calgary and Edmonton. There'll be more information on our social medias about that. Hope to see you there. And thanks for listening. The Canadian Real Estate Ambassador is for entertainment purposes only and not financial or investment advice. Always do your own due diligence. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center, license number 10317, and a partner in G&H Mortgage Group. Agent license is M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker at Royal LePage or Community Realty, a member of Royal LePage Commercial, and a licensee with the Canadian Real Estate Association, Ontario Real Estate Association, and a member of the Toronto Real Estate Board.